Did you know the problem of dyslexia is bigger than anticipated? It is not just a handicap discovered more and more amongst our young people. College students and even adults admit struggles with comprehensive reading and studying in general. On Gesundheit with Jacobus this Sunday morning, I will interview Elsie Johnson, a registered educational therapist, and Dr. Ronald Davis from the Davis Dyslexia Association International. There is a stigma about dyslexia and associated disorders in today's society, but Elsie and Dr. Davis will lift the veil this Sunday morning from 7 to 10. with Jacobus Health Talk Radio integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time here is your host Jacobus Hollowine good morning to you we are on the program today this is Gesundheit with Jacobus I am your host Jacobus Hollowine we're talking about health healing and healthy lifestyles be it physical mental emotional spiritual and we love to talk with the experts people in the know who share with us their passion who share with us their knowledge, their profession, their experience about a topic at hand that helps to increase or improve our health, healing, and hopefully help in our choices of healthy lifestyles. And we always suggest that you see more information, find more information as you are listening to this program, and we hope to tickle your interest in the topic at hand uh, that you that you find more information that may help you or somebody close to you because we're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. We're here to inform you and educate. And with Chuck in the studio, we always are here to entertain you. Yes, yes indeed. And uh, good morning, by the way, Chuck. Good morning, Jacobus. I love it how you always have that microphone ready to go. Oh, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pro. A mm. pro at work. <laughs> it's like an appendage. Yes. But we appendage. An appendage, yes. Is that not the same as appendix? No. Yeah. Although they're both stuck on you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go. That was Elsie already. Yes. yes. Of course. She's jumping sharp. right in here. She's right there <laughs> with us. So we are here to uh, to share information. And today, uh, as the late night TV hosts always say, we have a fantastic show for you. Today we are going to talk about dyslexia. And the more I'm prepping about learning disabilities and dyslexia and autism, ADD, ADHD, the more fascinated I am by the wealth of information and research that has been done in the last several decades. And one of the pioneers of that will be on with us on the phone from 8 to 10, that is uh, Ronald Davis. But with me in the studio, we have Elsie Johnson, who has been working with learning disabilities for the last 30 years. And she, uh, after being in Kalispell for a while, she moved to Manhattan, Montana, about three years ago. And so she's in the studio with me. And let me tell you a little bit about her so we can uh, we can all be on the same page. Elsie uh, Johnson, director and owner of Learning Options, is a licensed and certified Davis Dyslexia Correction Facilitator as well as a Learning Disabilities Network Registered Educational Therapist. Now, that's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Learning Disabilities Network Registered Educational Therapist. 
Her very first teaching experience in 1970 showed her the suffering and frustration of an otherwise bright child. All of the instruction this particular third grade child had received was unable to provide him the opportunity to learn to read. Her five years teaching at the campus school at Smith College in the 1980s highlighted that differences continue to exist despite the best economic, social, and education resources. From 1990 to 1995, she taught at Landmark College, the only college in the world for students with specific learning disabilities. Then in 1999, a student told her about his tools from the Davis Dyslexia Correction Program. For students who struggle with associating sounds with letters and meaning, using their nonverbal intelligence or more simply put, picture thinking, makes the connection that has been unavailable in any other way. In Elsie's full-time practice, based out of Western Montana, Manhattan to be specifically, specific, she works with talented adults and children, helping them succeed because of, and not in spite of, their way of thinking. Now, for those of you who like to find out more about Elsie Johnson, uh, you can go to her website, The Learning options.com the the learning options.com you can also call her by phone at uh, 282 7416 282 7416 and if you're outside this area and listening over the internet which we hope you're doing uh, you can go by uh, click on on GWJ radio.com gwjradio.com and follow the radio link to listen live the broadcast is very beautiful listen to but if you can also call a toll free at 800 276 3138 800 276 3138 and also a lot of information is available on the website dyslexia.com dyslexia.com so, Elsie, it's with great pleasure that you are here and that I welcome you to the program. Thanks for being here. Well, and it's a very good pleasure for me to be able to take this time to help people know a little bit more mm-hmm. about this whole idea of nonverbal thinking. That is, uh, that is indeed a, a thing that is a concept. When you say it, nonverbal thinking, those are three words that I can understand. But there is, a, there is a whole theory behind it. What is nonverbal thinking? Well, in the introduction, you use the word nonverbal thinking, or more simply put, picture thinking. Uh-huh. That's something that Ron Davis, the expert on, on discovering how that part of our brain is what is responsible for dyslexia, will be able to give us a much more detailed description of. Mm-hmm. But for me, the idea of nonverbal thinking is when we think and we're not thinking necessarily with words we're thinking with other senses. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about how things might um, look or what they might smell like, mm-hmm. the, the multimodal. Let me back up a little bit. I'm going to start, first of all, with um, when, I, when I moved here mm-hmm. just three years ago. Yeah. I was in uh, Kalispell for a long time. Yeah. I was there for 12 years. And that's where I was uh, introduced to the whole idea of the idea of the Davis Dyslexia Association. 
there was a student that I had worked with that came back after having had a program, and he was a different student in terms of his ability to to be able to read and be able to deal with the frustration that he'd had going on before. Because I had such experience working at Landmark College uh, in, in Putney, Vermont, where you have to have a learning disability to even apply to be accepted, I thought that I had some very good experiences world with students from worldwide who would come in and we'd be able to help them succeed and using their uh, strengths to take care of their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And the big key to our fame there was that we used multimodal instruction and we also looked at uh, each each area of learning specifically and analyzed what was a problem that they were having in these areas, whether it was reading, which would be the actual looking at language to see if you could figure out what those symbols on the page said, mm-hmm. or whether it was comprehending once you were able to read what those words said, mm-hmm. or if it was speaking, mm-hmm. or if it was your ability to listen, or your ability to write. There's just a wide variety mm-hmm. of areas, ways in which uh, it can be difficult for a person to um, be literate, so to speak. Right. And um, sometimes our skills are receptive, and that's when we're taking information into our brain. Mm-hmm. When you're talking and I'm listening, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm using my receptive skills. Mm-hmm. When I'm t- saying ideas that I have in my head, and I'm putting my ideas out to you, when I'm using my voice... I'm I'm using um, I'm doing I'm using my expressive skills, expressive. and so mm-hmm. I'm giving you that information in this way. Now, if I were not able to dance, if I were not able to say it, I might write it. Some people are more comfortable with writing than they are with speaking. Yes. Some people can't write and they can't speak, so they might dance it or they might cook it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That's what we would call multimodal. There's a variety of ways to take information in. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of ways to take information out. Mm-hmm. Now, this makes me think of a song when I was a little girl that we'd sing, and the music goes round and round, oh, 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 yeah. and it comes out here. Yes. Well, in between the receiving of information and the putting of information out again is the processing. That's what happens when it comes mm-hmm. into your when it comes into your brain. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of uh, being able to help folks when I was on campus there was to find out where they were strong and help them with their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So that if I was, even in years after I left Landmark, when I when I sit and I'm when, when I'm with people, I have this 300 item checklist in my brain that I'm checking off the strengths and weaknesses of people. It's an old habit that dies hard, <laughs> but um, it's a way of of uh, my way of of looking at them. It's like if you were um, out in the bright sun and you put on sunglasses, you have a filter so that you're able to see things better. Okay. And so when we have an area of expertise, as you do with mm-hmm. with your health store and with this radio show, and as I do when I speak with parents or adults that call me, I have a filter or a way of looking at what they're telling me and okay. a way to help them understand what's going on. Right, right, right. I'm taking a long story, no, long, no, a long no. road around to nonverbal thinking for yes, you. But, but um, this is still... Uh, uh, this is good because mm-hmm. all of us uh, listening to what you have to say. Uh, this is what this is what the show was all about to to let people like yourself express and share with us, and then do it in a way. Because I, as you were talking, I was this thinking 
it's amazing to talk to somebody who is in the education program. You have a way of expressing yourself that makes it very clear to the one who is listening because that's what you're supposed to do. You're the communicator here, one of the part of the communication. And uh, they often say, well, I don't get it. Well, does it mean that I don't get it? Or is it because you didn't express it correctly? Mm-hmm. And so uh, you always have to go within and find out where is it exactly. So if somebody tells me they don't understand what I'm talking about as far as vitamins are concerned, then it is more the way I have expressed it that they don't understand it. So you have to come with a, you have to have another way of Always. giving this same information to them. Exactly. And I hear that mm-hmm. in the way you express this, you're very clear about, and I can visualize what you're saying. So it becomes very understandable for me. So I appreciate that. Well, and that's not an automatic thing. It's something that one learns over time. Mm-hmm. Because even when I was, uh, the different experiences I've had teaching in different settings and other things that I've done in my life, uh, I might not have appreciated or really understood their place the way that I do now. Because the way that I think about things now, it's impossible for me to even consider speaking with someone whether it's on a professional level or on an informal level as mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. without having them understand the whole idea of their nonverbal or their picture thinking intelligence because it's right. simply it's simply you don't you're not you not it's not a hundred percent of of we're, we're not talking with the whole we're not playing with the full deck how's that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you don't use this if you don't understand this part of your brain and how this part of your brain works yeah. then you're only thinking with you're only looking at things from one perspective. Yeah. And all perspectives that are related to all perspectives, I think I can say that safely, that are related to education or to how we help people and we instruct them come from the word thinking model. Hmm. And that's the big difference between the word the thinking. word thinking model or the verbal intelligence. Okay. Word mm-hmm. and verbal, you can substitute them. Okay. In this in this instance. Uh-huh. And so when I talk about verbal intelligence, I'm talking about word thinkers. Word thinkers. And when I say nonverbal intelligence, I'm talking about picture thinkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing is about picture thinking. When a person thinks about picture thinking, you think about a frame or a picture. Mm-hmm. Picture thinking is so fast that every one thirty second of a, se- a second, we have an image that goes through our brain on the picture thinking or the nonverbal intelligence side of our brain. And so they're going so fast, it's almost an intuition or a sense. Okay. Versus word thinkers, where the way that our brain views things would be like the ticker tape in New York Grand Central where mm. they have that the words that go through okay. and you can only see the words All right. now if we wanted to talk about word thinkers and picture thinkers I'm going to have you visualize something I'm going to have you activate your nonverbal thinking right now All right. Okay. and I'm going to have you think about a, a ruler or a rectangle that has broken into 10 sections okay and on one end of the ruler, we're going to have nonverbal or picture thinkers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's going to be two of those slots or 20% of the population okay. that will be purely nonverbal or purely picture thinkers. Okay. And at the other extreme or the other outlier, we're going to have word thinkers. Okay. And these are people that 
think in words. They can see the ticker tape of words going by. They can hear the words in their head. But they cannot create a picture of something that they have not seen, which sounds a little bit crazy, but... Is it also 20%? That's also 20%. Mm -hmm. Now, but in the middle, we have 20 and 20 is 40, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. So we have 60% left over. Mm -hmm. So the 60% in the center are both word and picture thinkers. Okay. So 80% of our population at any time, people that are picture thinkers, it's going to be those that are purely picture thinkers plus the other 60%. Correct. So now we have 80% of the population is picture thinkers. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, or conversely, 80% of the population at any one moment is word thinkers as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not so strange to be picture thinkers. Mm -mm. When I first got involved with this approach and I learned that it was nonverbal intelligence and I would talk to people about being a picture thinker, they'd want to know, what is that? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that strange? Does that mean I'm different? Mm-hmm. No, the bottom line is you're not different, that 80% of the population does use picture thinking at any moment. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, right now, as we're using radio as a medium, people yeah. are not seeing something. They don't so see though, you and I sitting in pajamas. Exactly. So mm-hmm. their, brain does not, their brain is not able to perceive us as people, mm-hmm. but they're hearing, they're hearing the sounds of our voices and the words that we're saying. And so they're creating an image about what they understand about what that is. Mm-hmm. They're using their nonverbal intelligence. That's right. So isn't that interesting it that is very you interesting. might mm-hmm. not have thought about it in those terms, but that's the nonverbal intelligence or the picture thinking component. Mm. And that is different, but having, having the respect and the awareness of nonverbal intelligence is different from what I did at Landmark in that what I did, what other approaches that don't understand or help the, the person, my client, I'll call them a client. Yeah understand about their nonverbal intelligence, the the only way we have of helping them is to use multi modalities or multiple senses. Mm-hmm. Remember when I talked about re- receptive and expressive Correct. skills? Uh-huh. We would help them by finding their strongest reception skills, mm-hmm. whether it was audio or visual, kinesthetic, yeah. moving around, tactile. There's a variety of words that we use to describe that. And then the same thing is true with the um, with the expressive or the giving the information back out again so after the music multi- goes round and round. I'm what, sorry? What did you want to call it? Multi-what? Multimodal. Multimodal. And multimodal simply means multiple, like many, modalities or okay. mo- modalities would be different senses. Okay. Okay. Because uh, we in our body we have senses, we have touch, mm-hmm. we have hearing, we have smell, we have sight, we have sound. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I said all those, but you get the sense. Yeah, we have five senses. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then you go beyond it. When you did your introduction, you talked about emotional and spiritual. These mm-hmm. are other components of us, I and those see. are definitely nonverbal. But the mm-hmm. actual physical senses are the, would be the multi-modalities, mm-hmm. the multiple modalities. Mm. So understanding things from the point of view of nonverbal intelligence goes outside of the idea of just how you take information in and put it out again. It goes to the component of the picture thinking part of your brain. Is the picture thinking overstimulated these days with computer games, computers, TVs? 
Not what necessarily. Not necessarily, okay. No, no, that's just another modality. We're taking information in. Mm-hmm. And the student and or the person or the adult that's using those games is able to react to that stimulus and use a he uses a kinesthetic or a tactile response to it by touching things and making something else happen. And yeah. In the meantime, that processing, the music goes rounds and round and the inside of your brain yeah. is what's happening, is their their ability to respond to the things that they see and, and create a strategic response to it. And mm-hmm. Maybe I'll make this person do that or this car do that. I, I'm not too familiar with a lot of games. Mm-hmm. We have Elsie Johnson with us in the studio this morning. She'll be on till 10 o'clock. At 8 o'clock, we'll make a telephone call and we'll get uh, Ron Davis on, Ronald Davis, and he is going to be talking about the Davis uh, Dyslexia International uh, Association and the work that he has done. He's going to share a fascinating life story with us that I'm sure you want to tune in for. It's going to be great. And uh, Elsie is explaining her work through her business, The Learning Options, and you can go to her website, thelearningoptions.com, and she will be kind of a co-host with me during the 8 to 10 o'clock hours because of her connection with Ron Davis as well as uh, you know thoughts that pop in her head as we are having the interview. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. I have already figured out that this is one of these topics that we probably will not be able to discuss in one program because dyslexia and learning disabilities go very far and as we come back we will discuss some of the famous people that you know throughout history and today who have been diagnosed as being dyslexic having learning problems and some of those names may actually surprise you we stay tuned and we will be right back we have a caller who would like to get involved caller good morning to you thank you for joining your name how can we help you please Oh, this is the 12-year-old. Excuse me if my voice cracks. Uh, I'm, I'm going through changes. Uh-huh. And, and the reason I say this, I went to Livingston Health Fair yesterday, and you know how they compare your chronic age with your healthful age. Even though I'm in my 60s, I tested out to be 12 years of age. Huh. Uh, it was kind of a, a positive thing for me. Yes. But uh, here's the question. Um, as, as you know, there are numerous theories about how we have a new wave of new souls coming in. They, they're called like crystal children and... Uh, indigo, indigo children. Indigo, yeah, that's uh-huh. the one I was trying to think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps uh, the people, were, the tykes that we're talking about, uh, are so used to using uh, thought transference and spirit world without guttural uttering that uh, they're, it's hard to learn a more primitive way of speech through the mouth. Uh, and you, you are saying that famous, there are a number of famous people that uh, go beyond the normal uh, that have been dyslectic. Uh, so are the typical dyslectics above or below average in sheer intelligence and evolution? Well, when you say above or below the average intelligence, I'm, I'm going to have to say I want to use the idea of both verbal and nonverbal intelligence. The folks that I work with the, or, or someone that would be considered an indigo child or a crystal person are using their other senses or they're using their other modalities. And so for the, from the get-go, that, that would be uh, a, um, a way to think about a person that has those abilities to start with. It's just which, which modalities or which senses are stronger for them. But another really important component that is part of nonverbal thinking is the idea that when a person is, is uh, 
thinking in the way that you're speaking about, they are doing what we call disorienting. Mm -hmm. And disorientation simply means that your brain is taking in what your mind's eye is seeing. And your mind's eye is that part of your brain that is your imagination or your creative abilities. Mm-hmm. And so what your real eyes and what your real ears might be taking in does not, is not going into your brain at that same instant. What's coming into your brain is what your mind's eye, those cells that are activated when you're disoriented, are bringing into your brain. And so, for example, I can talk about a student that I worked with a couple of years ago who uh, mom had done some research about her online and was very concerned because she thought she was um, so different because of the things that she could see around people, the auras, if you will, and uh, didn't know what to do about that because at the same time where that, well, that's a wonderful thing for Hannah to have, the thing that was distressing for her was that Hannah was having a very difficult time with being able to do the kind of reading that was required at her level in school, and she was an early elementary student. Uh, she wasn't getting the picture about what she was reading, and she was not able to read as well as the other children. Mm-hmm. And mom knows she's an intelligent child. Mom and dad are, are intelligent people, as is Hannah. So she wasn't getting um, she wasn't getting uh, the punch for her. She wasn't getting the energy out of what she was putting into it. She was working hard and not getting what she could. Yet she had this wonderful ability. Yeah. And so that's a perfect example of how nonverbal intelligence, when a person uh, is is uh, employing their nonverbal intelligence or their picture thinking, oftentimes they're using they're in a state of disorientation. Mm-hmm. So Does that make sense you, to you? Yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure I heard an answer. Do, do the uh, dyslectics tend to have uh, more capacities for like telekinesis and ESP than uh, the average person? I would say yes. Oh. Well, that's, that answers it. That's the bottom well, line, yes. Well, the uh, I guess I was, I was going listening. into the explanation more than the yeah the, than the, than the quick answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I listened to Ron Davis' uh, preparation for the show, Daniel, um, he was talking about the crystal and the indigo children uh, briefly, and he mentioned uh, he doesn't call them that way. He calls them the new ones, the new ones. Oh. And he said that uh, one thing, and he may be able to explain that, but he's talking about the IQ level and. Uh, Ron Davis himself was diagnosed as the having the IQ of a chimpanzee, and yeah. he only had an IQ of 40. And so that was because he didn't speak till he was about 17 years old. And uh, so it was very, very hard. Now he is in his late 60s, and you'll be surprised to hear him speak. But uh, he was all of a sudden diagnosed at the age of uh, 17, I think, as uh, having an IQ of 137. When they decided to give him an IQ test. Yes, mm-hmm. and so then they found out that by the time he was 19, he was teaching cal- he was teaching calculus to uh, to other students. And uh, yeah, yeah, they so, but, said uh, Einstein yeah. had the trouble uh, learning to read too. Yeah, he took him a while to get to get going as well. But what he says is that these new children that are coming in seem to have an IQ of above 180 and he said right now that there's research being done on a child a young boy in New Zealand who has an IQ that is unmeasurable they say it is above 250 and they say that uh, uh, the IQ that these kids bring with them he said if we if when you just change 
when there is change something, uh, change happening, that means we have to let go of something else. And he said, so we need to accept the fact that as these new children come in with these enormous IQs, which is, by the way, worldwide, it, it, it crosses cultural barriers. And he says, this is something we're going to have to accept. And if we cannot accept that, but put these kids in a classify, if we classify them as being autistic, or ADD or retarded because we don't understand at this level what these kids have to offer. He said, we'll find out that within two generations, we'll probably self-destruct. And so he is very concerned about us understanding the changes that are happening in the new batch of children, so to say, that are being born with these enormous IQs that mentally we don't understand because they have a different way of communicating with us and developing and we need to learn that and so the work that you're going to hear about today is uh, is moving in the right direction all right well, here i'll give a simple yes no question then i, I can leave and you can continue on uh, all right now uh, uh benjamin franklin was supposed to have they estimate the highest iq of any american uh, was uh, benjamin franklin listed in this uh list of uh dyslexics um i'll let you know let me see political leaders Winston Churchill, King Carl Gustav of Sweden, Michael Heseltine, Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, John Edison. Kennedy. Uh, these were politicians. Mm -hmm. um, it says uh, Gavin Newsom, the mayor of New York, uh, of San Francisco, Nelson Rockefeller, Paul Wellstone, Woodrow Wilson, and George Washington. Uh, he is not mentioned in this one, so he oh. probably just had a good IQ, and he was not uh, dyslexic. Yeah, and then uh, worldwide, the one estimated with the highest IQ, uh, of course, they didn't have IQ tests back then, was Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe. Uh, Wolfgang mm. von Goethe. Mm -hmm. Goethe. Okay, well, that's All right, good. well, I'm going to go. Thank you very much for the call, Daniel. Right. Okay, bye-bye. So uh, if you were to describe dyslexia, what would you say dyslexia is? Well, dyslexia is a set of symptoms. Oftentimes when a person is diagnosed as dyslexic, what is being diagnosed is the difficulties mm -hmm. that are happening for them in a setting where they're expected to be able to use symbols to either take information in with the receptive skills of reading mm -hmm. or use those same symbols symbols to put the information out. It could simply be with spelling or it could be with putting words, letters together for words. Mm -hmm. uh, symbols are, are, are the death or a very, they're a trigger for people that are dyslexics because symbols are, um, they don't hold, they don't have the meaning that they do automatically for a word thinker. And mm -hmm. in, in the idea of language, uh, if you put the filter, put those glasses on again and think about learning with the idea of how um, language has three things. There's three parts to every, every piece of language, whether it be a letter or whether it be a word. And that is what that symbol looks like, which is what we see when we use our eyes. Correct. What that what that symbol sounds like if mm -hmm. we're able to put a sound to that symbol mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what that means okay and this we have symbols in math we have symbols in reading mm -hmm. and those are pretty much the the limit of our symbols in reading we not only have letters but we also have 
these little squiggly other black lines on the page or black spots on the page, which are punctuation. Yes. And it, there's a big difference if you are reading something and there's a place for you to pause and or, or there's not a place for you to pause. Mm-hmm. I use a sentence with my students when we first check for triggers and punctuation and it goes like this. Um, I'm hungry. Let's eat, Grandma. Or I'm hungry. Let's eat, Grandma. There's a, you know, if you hesitate at the wrong That's spot, right. then it That's could right. be, it's a very fun thing for, for depending on the age of the student, we'll yeah. do different yeah. things. But you see, those are symbols that are involved. And the, the dyslexia, to go back to your question about dyslexia, dyslexia is uh, a, a, when symbols trigger a person to become disoriented, mm-hmm. which means their brain stops taking in accurately what their eyes are seeing and their ears are hearing, then they replace that with other conceptualizations. They okay. have to have a concept or an idea mm-hmm. in order for that mm-hmm. for in order for them to make sense out of these things. Right. So the idea of dyslexia could be someone that's diagnosed with an inability to read. Or they might be able to read. I remember a young man, 140 IQ, could read anything. But if he tried to compare that thought to some other source, he wasn't able to illustrate his understanding or his comprehension of that material by comparing it to something else. Mm-hmm. His ability to comprehend it and put it out in a way that showed he had a comprehensive understanding of it did not exist. So he mm-hmm. would be considered dyslexic in that way. Although he could regurgitate to you exactly what he read, or he might even be able to tell it to you with a little bit of different words, but to truly get, he didn't get the picture, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. which is another cool part about picture thinking is that you get the picture. When you said earlier about whether or not you could get something, that's part of actually the lingo of picture thinking. Do you get it? I see. Do you get it? Right. Uh, and so as a result of this, um, the way in which the information is perceived or not perceived creates these problems um, in, in reading or writing or even putting your ideas out or listening to someone and taking what they're saying to you in a different way than it was meant to be taken. Now, when, as Ron Davis is going to come on, uh, we're going to elaborate even more using his words and, and the way he explains dyslexia. Uh, so... I just want to make sure that we, we let our listeners know also that you do work yourself. It's called The Learning Options, and mm-hmm. people can go to your website, thelearningoptions.com. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about The Learning Options, uh, how people can get a hold of you, uh, what exactly do you offer at The Learning Options? Okay, well, to start off with, The Learning Options is a uh, business that is located, to tell you the God's honest truth, I'm not in Manhattan. Oh, you're not? When I moved to... You're still in Western Manhattan. Yes, I am, I am, I am. (laughs) When I moved to, when I moved from Kalispell to here, and I needed to put down an address for myself... The little town of Churchill is a hill with a church and then some houses and then another church and then you go down the hill and that's the end of Churchill. Yes. Well, Churchill doesn't have its own zip code. Oh. So we had to use the Manhattan zip code. Uh Ah. And so I Mm. very innocently put that on my my promotional materials. And so when people are trying to find me, they say, 
I'm in Manhattan. Where are you? And oh. I have to say, well, I'm 10 or 12 miles away. <laughs> oh, boy. But I've learned I'm going to put Amsterdam because I, I guess I can use the word Amsterdam. But you, you see, there's worldwide. a rule People of know which where you symbols. Are. Yeah, which symbols do I need to use to express truly where I am? Yes. And I wasn't using the proper symbols, was I? Uh, <clears throat> correct. Okay. Exactly. So the idea of learning options, I because when I left Landmark and I came out west, first to Texas for one year in the city of Lubbock, and then up to the Kalispell Flathead area for mm-hmm. a dozen years mm-hmm. before coming over here, my husband is the uh, director for solid waste for the city of Bozeman, oh. and so I follow him and I do my thing wherever he ends up being. Yeah. So we both are concerned about resources, but in different ways, mm-hmm. you see. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning options is... I decided to name my business Learning Options while I was in Kalispell because I truly believe that people get to a point either in their own life as adults or parents of children where they see that they feel like they're out in left field, Mm -hmm. to use a picture phrase. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. just don't feel like they have any choices. They don't know what to do. They're at their wit's end. Just things are not working for them. And so what do they do? And um, I've always been a strong person for advocating for students. And no matter which state I was in, um, there's always a state organization, not necessarily run by the state, but a a statewide organization for student advocacy. And there's something in this state called PLUCK, which is Parents Let's Unite for Kids. Uh And so those folks are are a godsend oftentimes because they have family support consultants that can provide you help to how to advocate for your student within within the school system. Mm -hmm. So that's one level of options. Mm -hmm. But my options are totally different. Um, I I named my business Learning Options because options, when you have an option for something, you can either exercise it or not. Is that correct? Right. You can go in different directions. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you can think about it as a financial one. You know, Mm -hmm. do I go with Madoff or don't I? You know, what what do we want to do with that? Well, now we know. Now we know, don't Uh we? Yep. (laughs) You don't want to be what Madoff is. Well, and if you look up the word option, it means having the power, the right, or the responsibility to do something. Yeah. And so people have options. You're not at a dead end. Mm -hmm. And if you were to call me because of the name of the business learning options, I would I would help you see what options that you have. Mm -hmm. So when people give me a call, they're calling because something hurts. There's a problem and they need some help with it. Mm -hmm. It could be as simple as is there school and billings today because my my telephone, my 800 number is all over. Or it could be I have a friend whose son is struggling. He's in third grade. Um, he mom thinks he's doing okay. He's getting tutoring help, but he's not. He's falling further and further behind. Yeah. What can I do to help them with uh-huh. that? Mm-hmm. Or um, uh, my my daughter, who's a 4.0 student in school, huh. is doing excellent. But I'm so tired of helping her. <laughs> I want her to become more independent with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so then I asked them to tell me a little bit more about what's going on. And if I feel like the student or the person that needs the help is strong in their nonverbal intelligence by some of the things that the person on the phone is able to share with me, mm-hmm. then I will go further with them on what to do about that because I work only with people with strong nonverbal intelligence now. Okay. And the reason for that is there's great help mm-hmm. for verbal thinkers. Mm-hmm that 80% of the population that's the verbal thinkers. 
the people that I work with are either purely on that purely 20% nonverbal or picture thinkers, right. or they're so strong in that way while being weak and being able to understand how to figure out how to say words because of the letters. Correct. That they that that's a difficulty for them, or they may be able to say words like the 4.0 student. You're not right. a problem. They can read what those words are. They can are. read it. So they have two parts of that language. They have what the word looks like and what it sounds like, but they don't truly know what it means. So they may have a photographic memory or something? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people that are dyslexic are in that that percentage of the population, which is... uh, a great percentage of the population that's what we call strong visual spatial thinkers. Okay. They have a great ability to be able to imprint that on their brain and be able to regurgitate it to you. I see. It's kind of like the spelling test where you memorize how to spell that word that day, but you, when you go to use it later on, you really don't have it because mm. you didn't really master the word. Okay. You just put it in there for the time being and then you spit it out and then you were done with it. Which you have then, for example, with those people that if they read, that they are very monotonous in their reading, that they don't understand, that they don't read it with the emotion that the text is written in, but more because they see the words, they just recite words without emotions. That's actually a, a very good way of saying what happens to. Um Adults that are able to read the words. Correct. They can read it. Uh, they are able to, uh, but they have to go slow. Okay. And when they get to the end of something, they may have to reread it again. All right. In order to figure out what it is that they just read. Okay. And then their ability to uh, understand it and use that information might be limited, mm-hmm. but not always. Each mm-hmm. person is the, the whole world of individual differences is where learning comes learning comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when, when people people call you and they say, Elsie, uh, there are some issues and we would like to talk with you, is the first an interview over the phone? Or Absolutely. do you say first Absolutely. over the phone? So you mm-hmm. kind of pre-qualify them. Absolutely. And then you say, this is something I really would like to talk to you one-on-one. And uh, that, No, we no? will. No, no. When a person calls, uh, the, the first step is to, to ask them if they have time to have a conversation then. For okay. an hour, it's going to be an hour, an hour and a half on the telephone. Wow! Because they have a lot to tell me. They are experts about about themselves or their students. Correct. And I need to know what they know about them and have them just vent to me what they see is going on. And then if I have other questions that they haven't already told me something about, I'll ask them. But what if it is a non nonverbal person? A nonverbal person, a person that's non-verbal, a, uh, that can't non-verbal talk to intelligence, me. right? Somebody. Uh, so I would say this is probably somebody who's either the parent or a caretaker of this mm-hmm. individual. So this person would really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. They. What, from what they're telling me, I get the idea of whether or not this person is strong in their nonverbal intelligence. Right. If the kind of mistakes or the kind of problems that they're telling me about are indicative of a person that's a dyslexic or a strong nonverbal thinker. Right. Then I'll know that if they say to me that they're that they, when they read or when their child reads something, they see words and they're able to maybe say them, but the very next paragraph they don't know what those words are again. Mm. Then that's a clue right away to me mm-hmm. that the person is not uh, they're dealing with words that are don't have pictures. I see. Mm. 
All right. Well, I uh, we, the music is playing, so I yeah, know the music. That's yeah. <laughs> a nonverbal signal that That's, we need to stop. Right. Chuck is uh, hardcore when that comes it comes down to that. Now, for those of you listening, uh, we highly invite you to stay tuned for the next two hours when Elsie stays in the studio, kind of a co-host with me, and then we have Ron Davis with us. Stay tuned, please. So let us let me explain to you a little bit about Ronald Davis. Like other dyslexics, Ronald Davis was gifted with an unusual talent for creativity and imagination. Yet, he grew up wondering why he couldn't function right in schools where teachers labeled him retarded. After numerous failures and setbacks, he eventually became an engineer, a businessman, and a sculptor. And at the age of 38, made a startling discovery that enabled him to read a book, cover to cover, in just a few hours. This inspiration led to Davis's revolutionary procedures, outlined clearly and simply in his 1994 book, The Gift of Dyslexia, so that anyone, teacher, parent, therapist, or dyslexic, can use them to successfully overcome the difficulties of dyslexia. Now, you can go to dyslexia.com to find out more information about what uh, Ron Davis is doing with the Davis Dyslexia Association International, the DDAI, Davis Dyslexia Association International, which was founded in September of 1995 by Ron and his wife, Alice. And it's, it's a wonderful resource, folks, to go to and some great links to articles and research work and uh, and, and research peer-reviewed studies about his success. So we hope you will check that. Uh, you can do it during the show or you can do it after the show. But in any way, we have Ron Davis with us on the phone. Ron, thank you so much for getting up early with us this Sunday morning. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing very, very well. Uh, looking forward to this morning. And uh, I, I'm... Uh, I think in front of you an hour, no, behind you an hour or two. That's correct. Uh, so. <laughs> you, it, is, yeah. uh, it is 8 All o'clock right. right now, and you must be about 7. That's true. Yes. That's true. Well, Elsie Johnson so. is with us as well, and she would like to say hi, I'm sure. Hi, Ron. <laughs> uh, hi, Elsie. Good to hear you. Yes, I was going to tell Jacobus, more importantly, rather than never, never mind the educational specialist, it's being certified. Having gone through the process and the training and the certification that you provide us so that we can help those nonverbal thinkers, that's mm -hmm. really the imp most important part of my life right now. Uh, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to being able to talk about dyslexia to to. Uh, a very large group of people in Bozeman this morning oh, because you. it's it's where my life is centered around right now. Mm. Would you please share with us your story? Uh, well, well, <clears throat> the word dyslexia is what gets me on the telephone this morning. Mm, yeah, and I am a dyslexic person, but now there's another word that goes with that. I am a corrected dyslexic person. Uh -huh. uh, and what that means is I can read and write as well as anyone I know. As a matter of fact, I have 24 editors and publishers around the world today. Wow. So there's a lot of people who are very familiar with the way I write and, and what I write, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, I could not read myself until I was 37 years old. That's amazing. Yeah. And... Uh, <clears throat> When I started out in life, I had a, a, a problem that's actually more severe than the dyslexia. 
When I was an infant, my mother was told that I was a canner's baby. And Dr. Leo Canners is one of the individuals that coined the word autism uh, in the United States. And I want to I want to jump in just a moment. Canners is spelled K A N N E R, correct? Exactly right. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, his name was Dr. Leo Canners. Leo Canners, okay. Leo Leo Canner, and he he actually published in 1943. Wow. And that's where he, for the first time, used the word autism to describe individuals that do not develop social skills. And the the Canner syndrome is, of all of the, the autistic spectrum today, it is the most severe. Uh, oftentimes, the, the Canner's individuals wind up in institutions around the age of eight uh, with very low in- intelligence. Hmm. So that's that was my beginning, and the the label I got, the official label was uneducatable mental retardation, and I got that when I was twelve years old. Yeah. So for me, going to school was you know, for the first little while I was oblivious to everything. I wasn't even aware that I was alive. So going to school, I had to sit in the corner of the room with a handkerchief on my head most of the time. And <laughs> I often asked why the handkerchief was there, and I think it was there to keep me from running around, because children that are the way I was are, are very active individuals, yeah. and if that handkerchief ever fell off, boy, they'd give me a good hard whack, and mm-hmm. they'd put it back on and push my nose tied up into the corner. So wow. I'm pretty sure that that's why it was there. Wow. And <clears throat> now, developmentally, I began to develop around the age of nine, somewhere in there, things in my universe began to change. And I think I did, emotionally and psychologically, between the ages of of, uh, nine and 12, what an average child does between birth and two. And I think I did between 12 and 15 what a normal child would do between two and four. So emotionally and psychologically, there's an 11-year delay in my development. Hmm. And in spite of that, I did not learn to to talk coherently until I was 17. And then uh, I got uh, speech therapy at the age of 17, where I learned to talk in sentences. So would you say and, would you would you express uh, uh, words? I mean, would you would you uh, actually express words while you were younger, or were, uh, you, were you totally it, quiet? It, it would depend if if. If it were people that I was familiar with, like in my own family, yeah. uh, I would I would try to express. Like if someone was going to be going somewhere in the car and I wanted to go, uh, I would say something like, car, cargo, you go, car, me, car, go, gar, cargo, me, to car, cargo. Right. Uh, this is the kind of thing that would happen. But if there was someone that, that I was not familiar with, uh, I would absolutely be, be uh, silent. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the when I go to reunions from school, yeah. Uh, the one thing that the, everyone remembers is that I was a silent individual. Many of them don't remember sitting in the corner or the the fact that they were calling me a retard. Those are are, are long gone memories. Yes. But <clears throat> they do remember that I never said anything, uh-huh. <laughs> which yeah. is rather interesting now because all I do is talk. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're making up for lost time. Indeed, and and it's it's 
well made up for because what I'm talking about has to do with what a lot of other people are suffering. And dyslexia itself, uh, even though I came at it as... uh, Dyslexia was a secondary problem for me. But as I developed, it became the biggest problem. When I was 17, they actually gave me an IQ test. And as a result of the IQ test, they gave me a new label. They gave me the label of genius at the age of 17. (laughs) And... That, that was, of all of the labels that I had, that was the one that I really didn't want. That's the one that was the, the, the real scary label for me. Because I was afraid that with that label, people would be expecting things from me that, there, that would be impossible for me to, to do. I see. So the, the real value in having that label is the way people would treat me. Prior to that, they treated me like a, as though I was a retarded individual. I mean, I was I was either teased or discounted. Right. And with the label of genius, the the teasing disappeared. And people do treat you much differently with that. But the the decision was after I learned to talk that they were going to teach me how to read. And it's really interesting what they did with me fifty years ago. Yeah. They're still doing it. They're still trying to do it. And it didn't work 50 years ago, and it still doesn't work. Uh-huh. And what they were trying to do is the phonics training. And if you are a person who thinks with the sounds of words, phonics and phonetic training make all of the sense in the world. Mm-hmm. But now if you're people, a person... <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, in our previous hour, Ron, I help people understand the difference between verbal and nonverbal intelligence. And those that think with the sounds of words would be described as the verbal the people with strong right. verbal intelligence. Right, right, okay. Just uh-huh. to give yeah. a reference back. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, excellent. Well, if if that's your primary method of thinking, then what what you would be doing in the phonics would make good sense. But if if you are a person who thinks with images as opposed to thinks with sounds, mm-hmm. all of that training it is actually uh, it, you fail so bad when you're trying to do it that it. It destroys your self-esteem, and it doesn't take very long before it's actually emotionally painful to 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 go through the the sessions because you just can't do it, no matter how hard you try, mm-hmm. and no matter how silly it seems that you should be able to do this, but you can't. Mm-hmm. It really destroys self-esteem as well. Yeah. Well, it can but, be something as simple as bit, bat, butt for a dyslexic. Unless there, there's so little difference between those three words because of the symbols, unless they can have an image, because the difference of an image between a bit and a butt or a bat are, are gigantic. But yeah. the, just looking at the symbols does nothing for them. Would that be appropriate, yeah. Ron? Yeah, that, that definitely. And, and you don't even needly, really need to be able to see the the word in attempting to... to to make the sound, you have to be able to internalize the sound. And if you are a non-verbal thinker, internalizing that sound is, for most of us, it just doesn't happen. And because it does not happen, then when we have to bring it back, it's just not there. And and you know, eventually you get to the point where you can't even remember the b the the b sound. Yeah. And then you get very frustrated, and then you want to leave, and you want to cry, and you want to run away. 
and the, the the people that you are working with you have no understanding of what it is that you're experiencing or going through, and they just want you to keep going over and over and over it. Right, and, and I, I understand <laughs> it, that that you said you express it uh, in your interview um, that it was both emotional and physical torture. Yeah. It, it, truly, I I would have preferred to, to have a physical beating than to actually go through an hour's worth of phonics. Can you can you try to describe to us uh, how, like somebody like myself who doesn't have that, what is what is that pain that you feel? Well, uh, it, it's well, uh, first of all, we would have to say that. It, that it is a psychosomatic situation. In other words, there isn't somebody putting pressure on you to, to stimulate the, the nervous system for that kind of pain. Okay. But you, you yourself are. You're trying to get your voice to do something, and, and you're, you're putting all kinds of, of intention and pressures into your throat, into your voice system. It, it can go all the way down into your into your chest and, and your diaphragm I where see. you are trying to do something, and what you're trying to do isn't working. Yeah. So yeah. What you, you're causing contractions to occur that actually do hurt. There is physical pain that is being exerted, and because you're the one that's doing it, mm. You think the way to solve it is to, to do more of what it is that you were doing that was causing it. So the harder you try, the worse it gets. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, now I don't know if all of the dyslexics will go to that degree. Uh, it, it might be that that my autism was also playing a role there. But from what I understand from other individuals that that are not in the autistic spectrum, that they experience very much the same thing when they're trying to do the phonics. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my favorite autistic dyslexic people in all of history was Albert Einstein. Yes. And Albert Einstein once said the, the definition of insanity is when somebody tries the same thing over and over and over again, <laughs> expecting a different result. And that's exactly what they're doing with the phonics. They're doing the same thing over and over and over, and they are expecting a different result. So it's not really me that says that trying to do the phonics is crazy. It's the most intelligent man of the 20th century that says that. Right. So this is, this is what, what they were trying to do. Now, also in my early training, uh, and again, we're going back 50 years, uh, I had to balance. Well, first of all, I had to crawl around on the floor for about a half an hour twice a day. Okay. And then I had to balance on a, a teeter board and balance on a balance beam. And you know they're still doing that today with, with kids who are who are dyslexic. They're they're still trying to get them to to do these things that have nothing at all to do with what's going on. If they could just realize that they have to deal with the the method of thinking that is picture thinking as opposed to the the sound thinking, they they would realize ah what we need to do is we th this person needs pictures. We don't need to show them pictures. They need to create the pictures. Okay. In other words, to show them pictures for the meaning of words is is almost as big a waste of time as trying to do the phonics. Uh -huh. Because it isn't the pictures that you see with your, 
your eyes is the pictures that you see with your mind that count. Mm-hmm. And those are pictures that you yourself have to make. So let me ask you, Ron, those, those first 17 years before they finally realized that you were much smaller than what they originally labeled you as, do you recall any of the times standing in a corner, being at home, being outside in the playground? What were some of the things that would go through your mind? Was there repetitive thoughts? Was it, uh, was it uh, more natural <laughs> thoughts? Do you remember that? Because Not really. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Word thinking, thinking with the sounds, you're aware of the sound. You're aware of the thinking. But when you're doing the picture thinking, it's happening faster than you can be aware. When when we slow it down to see what's going on, the person is actually thinking with images, and the images are happening 32 images per second. Okay. Well, we cannot be aware of anything that happens faster than 24 in a second. And that that's the speed at which the, the modern movie film moves at. Okay. And if something is happening and there's more... You know, the, the amount of time, what we're talking about here is called the incidence of awareness. The incidence of awareness is one twenty-fourth of a second. In other words, if there is a stimuli in the environment, that stimuli has to be present for more than one twenty-fourth of a second mm-hmm. in order for you to be aware that it's even there consciously. Okay. But if it is there for less than that, it goes into what is called the subliminal band. And the subliminal band goes up to one thirty-sixth of a second. So the stimuli can be there, but it's not there long enough for you to be consciously aware of it. But at some level within your system, you are aware of it, and you will react to it as though you were consciously aware. And because the picture thinking is happening within that band that is the subliminal band, you, as the person who is doing the thinking, you're not aware of what it is you're thinking. Oftentimes, a parent will ask a, a, a dyslexic child, what were you thinking when you did that? And the <laughs> child will simply say, I, I don't know. Yeah. And that is actually the truth. Now, yeah. we're not allowed to not know what we're thinking, <laughs> according yeah. to our parents. Yeah. So, you know, eventually we get to the point where we know that it's not safe to tell the truth about oh, what's gosh. going on with within us. So yeah. uh, <clears throat> when you when you ask now, I can remember the feelings that, that were going on uh, in, in regard to what was happening okay. without necessarily knowing the, the thoughts that were behind it. And, you know, like <clears throat> right around the point in time when I was coming out of the autism, let's say that, you know, possibly in grade school, let's say fifth grade, uh, my mother was still pinning notes on my chest to, to take to the teacher. Huh. And, and you know, I, I was very happy to do this. I, I, you know, but at night, at the end of the day, the kids would tape stuff on my back to take oh. to my mom. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the kind of things that would make my mom cry. Yes. Now, I was also the kind of person that could not be touched. Uh, I did not like physical contact. Uh-huh. And it, the the pinning notes on my back is the kind of thing that would make my mom want, want to hug me and tell me that everything was okay. Yet, I was pretty much oblivious to what was going on. I see. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that were happening. Now, my older brother, 
when there's a family that has one like me in, in the middle of it, the, essentially the whole family becomes dysfunctional. I see. And my mother, my mother tried. Uh, for me, my mother was an angel. Mm. My father was the opposite. He was the devil. Yes. And my father had no patience with me, and he did not have the kind of communication skills necessary to to allow him to even attempt <laughs> to communicate with me. So my relationship with my father was a physical relationship. In other words, <laughs> he beat me a lot. Yes, I and Ron, I would love and, to hear from you more, but we have to run to a short break. If you please okay. stick with us here through the break. Um, We'll be going on for another hour and a half with Ron Davis and Elsie Johnson right here on Gesundheit with Jacobus. Fascinating story. I would like to hear more about this relationship uh, with his parents. And also, I'm just curious how you have been able to deal with this emotional uh, abuse in a way uh, later on in life. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Ron Davis, uh, you are with us. Well, uh what happened is that my brothers had to be responsible for me. Wherever they went, whatever they did, they had to take me with them. Yeah. And that pretty much destroyed their childhood. Uh, you know, what, what kind of a childhood could they have? So uh, I can understand some of the animosity that they would feel. I can understand how it is that my older brother could spend hours and hours and hours over weeks of time getting me to make a sound out of my mouth that when I did it for my mom, she would wash my mouth out with soap. Wow. <laughs> or my, I can understand how there would be times that my brother would be so exasperated and, and so, you know, <clears throat> angry that he would simply say, you know, you were a mistake that God made. You were supposed to be a monkey in the jungle, and you wound up being my, my brother instead. Wow, yeah. And he's saying this to someone who doesn't understand that you can say things that aren't true. So I, I just simply accepted that as the explanation of why I was different than other people, I that I was simply a mistake. And then later, when when I was getting the speech therapy, I, I learned how to, to speak. And then I started the, the, the language or the reading training that included the, the phonics training. And by this point in time, I had been convinced that there was knowledge in books, and I wanted to get to the knowledge. I wanted to be able to, to have access to that, and the only way you can do that is to, to know how to read. So I, I started the, the reading training, and as, as much of a torture as it was for me to do this, I so much wanted the, the result that they were promising me that I was willing to endure the, tor the torture. But after almost a year of doing this, I, I, I just finally gave up and said, I cannot do this. This is not, no matter how hard I try, it, it's actually making things worse instead of better. And at that point, the, the doctor in the clinic where I was going, he told me that I was never, ever going to learn how to read and write. And the reason for that was that when I was being born, the doctor used instruments and he pinched my head. And he ruined that part of my brain that I would need to use to learn how to read and write. And I have to tell you that that was a fantastic explanation for me. That, that, that what he said really explained why I was different than other people in a way that I could understand it being true. Correct. So 
<laughs> I wanted to share this truth with my mom. Yeah. So when I told my mother, you know, the reason I can't learn how to read and write was that when I was being born, the doctor used instruments, they pinched my head. And my mom said, wait a minute. She says, that never happened. She said, your birth happened so fast, there wasn't time for instruments. Huh. And what she is saying is that, you know, I wanted to be a mistake that a doctor made. I didn't want to be a mistake that God made. I see. So I really wanted to believe that I, I had brain damage. So in spite of the fact my mother said that it wasn't true, I still believed it. Okay. And that was, you know, so I you wouldn't were, been you at were that about point. 17, 17 or 18 at this point? Actually, I had already my 18th birthday, so I was 18 when when this actually occurred. And at this but point, did, at this, yeah, go ahead, please. What it did mean was that, that regular education for me was out out of the, the question. I couldn't read and write, therefore I could not do uh, a, a normal education. But in spite of that, I became an engineer. Yes. Uh, in the 1960s, we were in a race with Russia to get to the moon. Yeah. And at that point in time, there was a, a lack of good engineers in America. Yeah. And if you could do good engineering work, you could actually be certified as an engineer without having graduated from university. Uh-huh. And that's actually the kind of engineer I am. I'm a certified mechanical engineer. Yeah. So, so uh, even though I could not learn how to read and write, uh, the intelligence was there sufficient to be able to hide it. Uh, my biggest job in life was to hide from other people the idea that I was a mistake that God had made or a mistake uh, somebody else had made, and that I wasn't a real human being. I was just pretending to be a, a normal, real human being. Yes. So I went through life pretending to not have <laughs> this horrible problem. In other words, I was hiding a very shameful secret and did not want people to know that I couldn't read or write. And, and essentially, what better way could there be to hide such a shameful secret than behind being successful? I see. So I was essentially successful in everything I attempted, be, not, not for the, the joys and the, the glory of being successful, but to hide a shameful secret. Uh-huh. And I was very good at it because no one ever discovered that I couldn't read or write. Uh-huh. So he was, and, you were creating a, sol- a solution for yourself. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it was a it wasn't a very good solution because every moment that I was alive, it was not safe or comfortable for me to be who I really was. And as a result of that, I, I was not a happy human being. I was not a, a satisfied human being. I was always feeling like someone was about to find out something that was going to put me into trouble. In other words, I, I lived a life of feeling like I was just about ready to get a beating. I see. And that is not a good feeling. That is not a good life. Mm. Now, Ron, but, I want to ask you, uh, when you uh, gave up on the phonetics after a year with the therapist you were working with, and you talked right. to your mother... Were you, at that point, able, were you actually verbalizing that? Were you able to make full sentences and, um, and yeah. express it to you? You were. Yeah. Uh, I, almost a year earlier, I had learned to, to talk, and it happened in a matter of seconds. I was, uh, I was involved in therapy with a, a fantastic human being, and when she got me to the point where I, I needed to stand in front of a full-length mirror and look at myself, struggling to speak, uh, 
I would run away from the therapy. I actually ran away from it twice. But I was so desperate to be able to do this that I was willing to come back and endure the torture. I mean, essentially for me, life up to that point in time revolved around being tortured. It was going from one torture to another torture to another torture, and the only respite that I would have from torturing was would be when I was working. So work, for me, was the most important thing in the universe, right. and the ability to communicate was only secondary. So as long as I was allowed to work, then I was willing to endure the, the tortures uh, that were around the rest of being alive. Right. Now, let me ask you a question, and this may be a yeah. tough question, uh, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine, too. Um, going through this kind of abuse from your father, your brothers yeah. who expressed this all the time, uh, your mother who always stood behind you and who just accepted you for who you were, uh, the torture of the therapies, the, 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 the doing your best to hide all this must have left a tremendous emotional mark, emotional pain on you, that in this day and age, uh, it's very popular to go to therapy and work these things out. I can also see that you have become so passionate about discovering your uh, learning disabilities that you have taken the bull by the horns and literally gone with it and say, this is my mission in life, this is what I need to do, especially after the age of 36, 37, when we'll talk about your time from 19 to, to 36. But after you discovered that you couldn't read and that you went for learning how to read and communicate, etc., etc., um, you may have just decided, you know what, I'm not going to look back. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. Whatever happened, happened. All these emotional feelings and pain and, and, and whatever came up is, is, is past. Um, and I'm just going with what I need to do to help millions of children who are dealing with this and adults who deal with this because that is what I need to do in life and not do a pity party. Uh, have yeah. you gone through the emotional work to deal with this or is this something you had to sweep under the rug till today? Uh, I have... I have spent a lot of time in therapy, primarily trying to to deal with the rage of my father and the beatings that I had when I was younger. Now, fortunately, the most of the beatings, I was still in a, a state of being unaware. Okay. So I do not remember the worst of it. Okay. Now, there's evidence of 27 broken bones in my body that happened from beatings from my father. Wow. And... and Luckily, most of that occurred at a point in time when my memory wasn't actually, wasn't even working. So I, I don't remember all of this occurring. Now, the latter part of it, yeah, I do remember. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have a very profound belief in God. Mm. And in my <clears throat> endeavors, I realized that, you know, uh, I am supposed to honor my mother and my my father and how do you honor someone who is who has been a, a raging maniac around you how do you do that so yeah. i i was willing to to endure a lot of therapies and you know th- there would be times in in the therapy when i i would i would actually say well i forgive you I but it, behind the scene i knew that it wasn't true 
see. And it, it, the, the forgiveness actually occurred outside of a therapy situation. <laughs> it was after the breakthrough had happened, and my wife and I, when when all of it happened, had been retired from real estate. We were very very fortunate to have uh, a, a good financial nest egg sitting there. Yet I started to fund the Reading Research Council, and we were running out of money. So we were selling that the home that we were living in, and, and it was while I was preparing the house. I went up on a on a ladder painting the eaves of of uh, a two story home. Yeah. And I realized that I was trying to forgive my father, and the person that I really needed to forgive first was myself. Oh, wow, yeah. Because I was the one that was having the feeling. I see. And I was the one that was reacting to the feelings that, you know, the, the feeling isn't now. You know, the reason for that feeling happened a long time ago. Yet I'm now reacting. I'm still reacting to something that right. happened a long time ago. Right. So I needed to. I needed to to be able to let that part of it go. Mm-hmm. And with the forgiveness of myself, that's what happened. That that got let go. And by the time I climbed down off that ladder, I had forgiven everyone <laughs> for everything, <laughs> essentially. And I, at this point in time, because I had now discovered that I wasn't a mistake, I was. I was still in the earliest stages of trying to live being really who I was, which was something that it was, this was very alien to me because I was so used to pretending to be somebody else yeah. that now that it's okay to just be who I am, uh, that <laughs> it was not an easy transition to make. Yeah. But at this point in time, because there's nothing that I'm trying to hide. Yeah. There, there's no secret that that you could know about me that 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 would would shame me. Mm. I can just be who I am, and, and and that is the wonderful thing. Right, and I, I I take it that in all your work that you do, and giving lectures, and working one on one with with children and people and adults, that because you have done your work, this is something that you probably will share with them as you're doing the, your therapy with them. Uh, indeed, but you know the, the the therapy isn't about me. The therapy is about the person that is sitting there. No, I realize that, but well, I feel um, that yeah. you probably want to tell them that this will be an important part of their healing and of their their growth. Yeah, when when we first started, when we first started working with individuals that had dyslexia, before well. We had been working and working and working, trying to get somebody through it. And then finally one day, somebody finished mastering their word list, which we'll talk about later. But that, that signaled that they were they had corrected their dyslexia. We were wanting to do something special for this person. So what we did is we put their name up on the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and And that actually became a tradition. Yeah. That when, when somebody would finish their program, their name would get put up on the wall. And I made it uh, a requirement in the early days that in order for the name to go up there, they would have to forgive everybody that has ever treated them unjustly or unfairly because of their dyslexia, uh-huh. that they would have to forgive them for that. And there were an awful lot of adults, especially, that could not do that yet. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that, that I had put a restriction or a requirement there that had nothing actually to do with correcting the dyslexia. So eventually we we, we stopped doing that. I see. Uh-huh. But 
the younger ones, it was easy for them to say, yeah, they, they didn't understand what was going on, you know. But the, the older ones that had been really tortured by the educational system, yeah. they were the ones that, that would find difficulty in trying to forgive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I didn't want to totally distract you from all your, your great stories, but I, I was thinking about this, and I felt this probably must have been a... This must have been an important part of your of your life in the last several decades dealing with this. Um, I know we're coming closer to the end of the second hour, and we we are looking forward to talking to you again in the third hour. Um, yeah. The you after you let you you, were, you you started working, you started teaching calculus at the age of nineteen. So after right. everything you've gone through, you taught calculus, and then you started working in a military program, working as an engineer on missiles. And uh, when you had uh, you were working the missiles, you realized that you were actually making instruments that would kill people, and you decided to just walk away. You literally just walked away from it. Is that correct? That's uh, essentially what happened. You know, uh, uh, it, it was a, a very difficult point in time because I had not yet realized the the degree to which I was actually hurting other individuals. Yes. Uh, that uh, that realization came came later, but I was reacting. In other words, the universe that I was living in, it was saying, "Oh, you're doing this," mm-hmm. but I had not yet come to grips with the idea that okay, I'm hurting people. Well, but it we, was after. <laughs> yeah, when we come back, Ron, I'm I'm sorry. When we come back, we like to finish that story and uh, your trip to San Francisco and your your success after that, and then we like to talk more about what you do on your website, dyslexia.com. Dyslexia.com. So, folks, stay tuned for Ron Davis and Elsie Johnson. That we'll be right back. You were actually in Bozeman in August, so some of the people in the audience today have do remember you listening to you while you came and visited the Museum of the Rockies and uh, gave a, a Sunday afternoon presentation. And when, as you were talking just at the end of the hour, talking about some of the work that you've done, the emotional work to deal with the traumas that were left after, you know, as you were growing up, your when you were 19, you were teaching calculus. You started working as a certified mechanical engineer, and you didn't like the work you were doing. What happened after that? Well, uh, essentially, I, I went to San Francisco to be a hippie. And <laughs> uh, I have to say that of all of the, the things that I have failed at in my life, failing at that, to me, was the worst of the lot. And the reason that I failed at being a hippie was because of the drugs. And I didn't understand why, but I I do now. The the drugs caused me to be in a state of disorientation. And that state of disorientation has been at the root of all of my problems for all of my life. And to deliberately do that to myself was very offensive. So I, I found myself in a very interesting situation at that point because I couldn't continue in the lifestyle I was in, which was pretending to be a hippie, and I couldn't go back to the lifestyle I had come from, which is going back to being an engineer and building bombs and missiles and killing people in Vietnam. Uh-huh. So I, I had to get a job. Yes. <laughs> 
and it, this was almost a new experience for me because usually, you know, when I was younger, it, it, people were offering me jobs as opposed to me needing to ask or, or figure out something. So I, I got a job as a driving instructor in San Francisco. And if you can imagine taking driving lessons from someone who does not know left from right, you can <laughs> get an idea of what that might be like. It's like the taxi drivers uh, had, in New York, huh? Like, yeah, I had no idea which yeah. directions left and right were. Yeah. So instead of instead of using the words, I simply pointed in the direction that I wanted them to steer, huh. and and that way neither one of us had to figure out if it was left or right. So uh, <laughs> I. I found myself in the role of a teacher, and teaching for me is, you know, back when I was 19 and I was teaching mathematics, I love mathematics. Mathematics are a part of who and what I am, and when I was teaching it, they they gave me a classroom, and the students had to sit in, in chairs that, that were like the desk kind of right. things, Right. and and. I was very uncomfortable trying to teach in that kind of an environment because mathematics doesn't belong in that environment <laughs> to me. Mathematics is, is it's a wonderful thing that is that is everywhere around us. And, and anyway, I didn't enjoy teaching something that I absolutely loved. But when I was working as a driving instructor, I worked one with one with a student, and we weren't in a classroom; we were in an automobile, uh-huh. and. If the student made a mistake, we caught it instantly. We would figure out a solution for the mistake. We would implement the solution, and this would create something called instant gratification. Uh-huh. And for a person like me, that you know, I, I go with the way things feel, and I love that feeling. So I really love that job. Yeah. But it didn't last very long, and then I, I started a metals brokerage company. And then not long after that, I got involved in buying and selling real estate on the San Francisco Peninsula. And this is the point where I met my wife. She was she was wanting to go to medical school, and she was selling real estate in order to finance that. So I got involved in real estate. We, we worked together, and we made for us what was uh, a small fortune. Yeah. And it was... In the late 1970s, the real estate market started to slow down, and we simply decided to retire. Hmm. But what I didn't realize is that I was hiding my problem behind working. And when you retire, it means that you don't work. And I started to experience depression from, from not working. And one day I realized, you know, if, if I don't do something with my time, if I don't find something constructed to, to do, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to die of feeling bad. So uh, I looked around for something that I could do with my time that, that, you know, I needed to to occupy myself. And essentially for me, all of my life, art has been a real narcotic for me. Uh I can start to draw something or sketch something or chip a piece of stone or carve a piece of wood, and the rest of the world goes away until I finish doing what I was doing. Well, my thinking was, well, if I can't hide my problem behind work, I can be oblivious to it with art. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel that I had enough talent to real be, really be an artist. I didn't think I could earn a living as an artist. But I was in a position that I didn't need to earn a living, so I started to play. And within a year, I was working as a portrait sculptor. 
everything I made, I sold, and I discovered that I could make a wonderful living as an artist. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, if I retire again, <laughs> I'm going to go back and, and be uh, an artist again. Because for me, it was like dying and going to heaven. Mm. But while I was working as an artist, I started to notice things that did not make sense to the engineer in me. And, and these things have been there my entire life, but I've always managed to ignore it. I've always managed to, to just push it aside and not pay any attention to it. But when I was working as an artist, I could no longer push it aside. What I realized was that when I was at my artistic best, I was at my dyslexic worst. And what that says is, I don't have brain damage. I see. That, that, uh -huh. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to believe from the time I was 18 years old, that the reason that I couldn't read or write was that, that a doctor had pinched my head. Right. And he was the reason that I couldn't read or write. And what I discovered was that the problem I'm, I'm having could not possibly come from that. It, it, it was like realizing that you can't have brain damage in the afternoons and in the mornings it goes away for a little while and in the afternoons it comes back again. It can't, doesn't work like that. If the problem is a structural problem, it's going to remain consistent. That's it's not true. going to come and go, come and go. That's right. So, yeah. So my thinking was, well, if the problem is not a structural problem, then what is it? And there's only one answer to that question, and the answer is, it is a functional problem. And what that means is, I'm either doing something that causes the problem to be there, or I am failing to do something, and that's what causes the problem. Mm -hmm. And with that thinking, I became a researcher into the field of dyslexia, and once I started looking, it didn't take very long before I started doing some finding. And what I, what I discovered was how to turn off a state of disorientation. When I would try to read, I would simply get disoriented. And in order to understand this, a normal person, if they were to simply take a book that they're very familiar with, open it and hold it above their head in both hands and spin around real fast 10 times and then sit down, bring the book down and try to read what it says, they would experience what it would be like to be dyslexic. Wow. Because huh. they are causing, the, the spinning around will bring about a disoriented state. A dyslexic person does not need to spin around in order to do that. They just need to try to read <laughs> and it will happen. Yeah. So <clears throat> what I discovered was how to turn that off. And that day I went to a library and I read the book Treasure Island from cover to cover in just one day. Oh. Now, for me, I never dreamed of the ability to read a whole book. Uh, for me, th that kind of a dream would not have been a good dream. That would have been a nightmare kind of a dream. And I never pre prayed for the ability to read a whole book. I, I didn't think that was the kind of prayer that God would answer. So there was a day in my life that I had an experience that was beyond my ability to dream and beyond my ability to pray. And as a result of that experience, two things occurred. It was the first day in my life that I considered myself to be a real human being, that I wasn't a mistake that God made or I wasn't a mistake that some person or some doctor had made, that I was really a human. Wow, that and, was amazing. Yeah, amazing. and that, that was the major point in my... If I would have to say, 
you know, there was the birthing that happened that I'm totally unaware of. Yeah. And then there was that day, and that's the day that I was really born as, as a real person. Yeah. And that's the person I am today. Wow. Anyway, <clears throat> huh. the other thing that happened for me that day is I made the mistake of thinking I had cured myself of dyslexia. Uh-huh. Because one day I can't read a street sign, and the next day I can read a whole book. I must be cured. And it wasn't like this happened. This happened a long time ago. It happened in December of 1980. By April of 1981, I realized that I wasn't cured. I realized that at the very most, all I had done is I'd found a piece to a puzzle. And it certainly wasn't the whole puzzle, and there would be more puzzle pieces that would have to be found in order to really understand or deal with what it is that was going on. So at that point, I and two other people created an organization called the Reading Research Council. And my wife and I funded it, and the three of us very quickly became 15, and we had (laughs) two basic goals. Wow. <laughs> the first goal was to to see if we could find the rest of the puzzle pieces to see if we could figure out what dyslexia really was, and the second goal was if we could find the puzzle pieces, figure out how to put it together in order to make the problem really go away. So by December of nineteen eighty one we knew what the puzzle pieces were, and by April of nineteen eighty two we knew what we would have to do to actually correct it. Now, we hadn't done it yet, but we knew if we followed these particular steps and we did this job completely and thoroughly, the problem should simply disappear. And what we had discovered in in that simple one-year period of time went beyond everything that people thought were taught and believed about dyslexia. The the old traditional beliefs and, and the ways of looking at it were not really based on on real evidence. They were based on only theories and thinking of individuals. And what we were looking at is, you know, we don't know if we've got the the theory correct, but we know if we do these steps, we can actually correct it. And that correction is based on the thinking about what dyslexia is. And essentially, dyslexia is not a disease. As a matter of fact, it is so difficult to create dyslexia. It's a surprise or it's a wonder that so many people actually can do it. I see. You mean turn it on yeah. or turn it off? You yeah, well, not it? turn it on or turn it off. It's, it's, you know, dyslexia is a developmental disorder. In other words, we create it. It isn't something that just happens to us. Okay. We have to actually create what it is that's going on. Now, we're, we're not deliberately creating a learning disability. That's not, that's not true. But we are creating what will eventually cause or be at the root of a learning disability. Or what we, we, we have to give something that we don't understand a name. We have to give it a name. Yeah. Yep. I see. And that is, and, that is, yeah, go ahead. Uh, it goes back to dyslexia is actually a product of three things. Not one thing, but three things. It's a product of thinking. It's a product of a talent or a natural ability the person has, and it's a product of how dyslexic people react to the feeling of being confused. I see. Hmm. In other words, there isn't a structural problem that is the cause of it. And when, well, let's step sideways just a little bit. In order to be dyslexic, you have to primarily think with 
the pictures. In other words, you have to be primarily a picture thinker to the age of nine. Uh, and you you covered uh, a couple of hours ago the idea of thinking with sounds and thinking with pictures. Yes. Most people can do both kinds of thinking, but, you know, when we are first born, when we are infants, we cannot do word thinking. No. Word thinking is a developed skill, and you can't even begin to develop that skill until after you've learned language. Mm. So the picture thinking is the kind of thinking that is normal or natural for human beings to do. This is the kind of thinking we're born doing. The problem is, when you're doing it, you're not aware of what it is that you're doing, right. because it happens too fast. Correct. So when they, when they decided to teach school, they decided that they would teach it to the word thinkers. In other words, the, the, all of school is based around word thinking. And some of us develop the ability to do that faster than others. And if you are nine years old and you haven't developed that skill yet, you're going to have difficulty in school. I don't know what they're going to call it. They could call it dyslexia or ADD or, you know, there are over 80 different names that they have now for it. Yes. But one of those names is going to get attached to you simply because you didn't develop the ability to think with the sounds of words. So <clears throat> this, is, this is where it all starts. Now, in order to have the real dyslexia, you have to be able to experience being disoriented. Now, disorientation is a normal and natural thing for human beings to do. If you've ever had the experience of sitting in a vehicle that's stationary and something outside your vehicle moves and you feel like you're the one that's in motion, yeah. you know what disorientation is. Yes, yes. There are some of us that are born with a genetic code that it gives us access to that function. In other words, we can simply make it happen by wanting it to. Where ordinary people, it, they, it is a reaction to stimuli in the environment. Correct, from the outside. Yeah, and it is this function, it is the disorientation that is truly what it is that we see when we see dyslexia. All of the symptoms of dyslexia are symptoms of disorientation. So you can have a normal person in an oriented state that do not that does not manifest any of the dyslexia symptoms. But if you can get that person into a disoriented state, you're going to see them start making the the symptoms of dyslexia. So what I discovered in in 1980 for myself was simply how to turn off the disorientation on the inside. Something I could do that would stop it from occurring. And that allowed me to to read a book. I see. Uh-huh. And that's what I thought was the <laughs> what had cured myself of dyslexia. But <clears throat> there is a reason why the disorientation occurs. Mm -hmm. And if you leave the reason why it's there there, it's going to keep occurring. So what we do is we address the reason that it is there. And there's a simple, it, it, it might be easier if I simply show you what this is about as opposed to try to tell you. Can I do that? Uh, yeah, well, I think we have about uh, a minute to do that. Can you do it in a minute or shall we do it when we come back from the from the break? Let's do it when we come back from break. Okay, because 
Now, uh, also, what we need to be aware of is that everybody that has dyslexia has their own stories about it. Right. There are no two people that have dyslexia that have the same thing. That's interesting also. And uh-huh. I actually sat in, physically sat in the corner of the room, but everybody that has dyslexia has their own corner, mm-hmm. if I can use that, that metaphor. Yeah. So <clears throat> we, we need to realize that, that not every dyslexic experience is the same as everybody else's. Mm-hmm. That's the wide range we were talking about this morning. Right. Yep. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a good point. Now, stay tuned. We will be right back. And we do have a caller who would like to get involved today with the topic. Caller, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Your name, how can we help you, please? My name is Marion Bakra. Hello, Marion. Hi. Good morning. It's an excellent show, and it's taken me a while to call since I'm trying to absorb all the information. What a story, isn't it amazing? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I have a question that well, probably there's obviously not a quick answer to it, that I guess I call myself after listening to the show a, uh, well, at least a functional dyslexic, uh, and so I'm not sure if it's fully corrected. I had a diagnosis of, di- of dyslexia when I was in my younger years and had a very hard time going through grade school and had quite a bit of humiliation. Um, that occurred with me, like when I was in third grade, I was humiliated in front of the class to go to the first grade and get a book from first grade since I really couldn't read. But, uh, you know, obviously not a severe form of dyslexia that, uh, that Ron Davis had. So my question is, since uh, I've since gone through college at an older age and seem to be operating well, would it be uh, what well, would it be beneficial for me to even consider getting an evaluation through LC just to see if you know I can benefit from doing something in the area? Well, of the I would <laughs> I would like to answer that, please. And uh, if for no other reason than your self esteem, mm-hmm. you you should do this. And and what it is that that you need to know is that that there isn't anything really wrong with you. Where the problem originated was in the way that they taught school right. is different than the way your mind wanted to work. Right. Yeah, and, I realize all that, but I, I've, I've observed everything that's happened in the show. So I'm really... Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I dealt with all the shame and the low self-esteem and being ridiculed and all that. Uh, so, And I think, you know, I, I guess... I probably have to deal, deal more with the trauma of it than actually with the dyslexia. So I guess that's what I'm trying to sort out. What I what I would say is even more than re- dealing with the trauma is that you really need to see that everything is okay. If you can see from a very clear perspective, you can let the past be in the past and get on with what is going on right now around you. If you have to, for some reason, keep a hold of the little parts in the past just to be all right as being yourself, you're not going to get very far. In other words, you're bringing the worst part of the past with you through time. And in dealing with 
this situation with Elsie. I don't know how much Elsie is, would get involved with you with the emotional part of the past because it's not important. Right, I what realize that. What, what, what I'm trying to differentiate, do I need to deal more with the emotional part of the past or can I still benefit from you know, the educational part that has to deal with the dyslexia, although I seem to be doing yeah. fine. So that's what I guess was my question. Is. Okay. But of course, essentially, no all right. <laughs> it, it, it depends upon you. It depends upon where you are emotionally. Now, the emotion that is right now and that is current emotion in this time is going to have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that is carryover from the past, it, it, the, the beauty is you're not going to have to deal with the whole train load of stuff. You only have to deal with the stuff that is being pushed in front of the trade, the stuff that is, in this moment in time, real emotion. So my advice to you, if for no other reason than to to see how easy it is. In other words, you were going through a system that was not designed for the way that your mind wants to work. What you need to see is a system that works the way your mind mm-hmm. wants to work. Well, I and feel, like, I feel, I feel like I've discovered that on my own, yeah. more or less, and I'm obviously pretty functional, but... Yeah. But I think I'll, I'll, well, I'll give Elsie a call after the show. But. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I would Elsie suggest that. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a good point. Elsie? Yes. Uh, well, what what would be the best, I think, is for you to, what Ron's trying to get to is having you understand what's right and how right you are mm-hmm. so that when you say that you're functional, you can understand Functional is okay, but the way you can be with the total understanding about what you're thinking and uh, your great talents and the things you do wonderful now are all about will make it be exquisitely simple to you to see how good things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of in also, spite of, that whole because of rather than in spite of is really relevant to what you're asking. Right. And in no way do we want to diminish the value of what it is that you've achieved on your own. Correct. I mean, I stand in awe of, of the fact that you consider yourself uh, functional. This, this demands great respect and admiration. But it doesn't mean that it is as far as you can possibly go. Right. That's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you answered my question. Yeah. Good. It makes uh, sense. Good. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for the call. Thank man. you very much. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yes. Excellent. It was very. It's a very good show. I appreciate it. Uh, caller, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Your name, please. How can we help you? Manuel. Manuel. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I had a question. Yes. I uh, I was gone for a couple of weeks I left the country yeah and uh, I have this friend and she's she's very bright and all that and she told me she worked in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years and when she forget things or not get things done on time that one of the uh, employees would hit her on the head with a shoe and I noticed that before she told me that that she'd forget where things she'd forget where she'd put things at, mm. and I was thinking that that probably had had a lot to do with it. How she she forgets where she puts things at sometimes. I don't know if, what kind of effect that would have. I mean the effect of uh, if that would be uh, considered dyslexia. Yeah, but she was. She said that she was hit numerous of times on the head with 
on her side of her head with a shoe. And this is just recently, or this is something that happened decades ago? No, this happened within the last couple of years. Okay, so you want to know what the effect would be when you get hit on the head? Yes. <laughs> I'm uh, not sure how that's related well, directly to this. Maybe, maybe, maybe Chuck can do that because I throw things at him all the time. Uh, I think that's conditioning, <laughs> maybe. Or, yeah. Well, there is something called aphasia. That Aphasia looks like dyslexia in many ways. But aphasia is caused from brain damage or nerve damage from either illness or injury. So if there was actual brain damage that occurred as a result of being hit with a shoe, then it could fit into that category. And it could actually look like dyslexia. But the dyslexia has a different uh, basis. It, it comes from abilities and not from brain damage. Okay. So I, I would suggest, yeah, uh, looking at it from that perspective, because if she is uh, experiencing difficulty as a result of of what could actually be brain damage, then that does not fit within the realm or the scope of what we can work with. Hmm. Oh, so she's probably already born that way because she's she's very intelligent. I know that part much of it. Yeah. So. Well, oftentimes we will look for an excuse to explain why things are happening. In other words, uh, I was very, very pleased to have the, the the idea that I had brain damage that was the reason why I was non-functional. Yet when I, we're dealing with it, I realized it, the problem is not brain damage or nerve damage. It's natural talent and the, the, the way I'm thinking that is causing the problem to be there. So from that perspective, I would suggest the possibility of reading the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, and see how much of that actually would fit with her. So you, what, you might even suggest that she reads it. Well, what kind of a, I mean, is there a certain book that you would get? I mean, there's probably different titles out there from well, different writers. The book that Ron is speaking about is specifically called The Gift of Dyslexia. And that is the book that talks about the nonverbal intelligence and the disorientation that happens so that when that's happening, you're not actually taking in your actual surroundings. And that could be a part of an explanation for her, what seems to be a memory loss. But certainly in a couple of minutes, uh, it would have to, we'd have to have more definitive time, and there are providers in that part of the world that she could speak with, but she can filter, use those, put those sunglasses on, and look at things through the filter of nonverbal intelligence to see if she thinks it's relevant to her at all. Okay, good point. I put okay. the ball in her court on that. Yeah, She's a smart person, and she can you know, get an idea about whether or not that makes sense to her, and then go from there. Go to the dyslexia site and see if that helps her. Okay. All right, Manuel. Thank you. you Thank you so day. much for the call. Bye bye. Welcome back, uh, Ron. As we are um, on your website, I found this uh, chapter. It's called Dyslexia and the Threshold for Confusion, and it says right. over here. Um, when dyslexic people make mistakes in reading or spelling, it is because they are experiencing disorientation, as we were just talking about, which results in distorted perceptions. The person's threshold for confusion is a key factor in how often he or she disorients. 
A person with a lower threshold is more easily confused and thus is more often disoriented. So it's almost like being distracted very quickly. A person with a higher threshold is less easily confused and less frequently disoriented. And then it says, Davis Orientation Counseling, so your organization will help a person to recognize and control disorientations, but it cannot prevent disorientations that stem from outside factors such as the one on this list. And so it, I would like you to go over that list for us. It is thus important for the person to also learn to recognize these sources of confusion so they can be avoided, resolved, or minimized. Would you please elaborate on these? Because I think looking at that list, that involves everybody. Well, what we need, yeah, the disorientation is a fact of life for everybody on the planet Earth. Yes. And and what I want to do is I want to do actually a step back before we go forward. That's right. You want uh, to do a game with me. <laughs> no. Oh. Uh, uh, the, the, the threshold for confusion, this idea that, that you're talking about that, that is mentioned in the book, the, the threshold for confusion is not a set thing. In other words, our, our personal thresholds for confusion vary from literally from moment to moment. And the things that would have the most profound effect on our threshold for confusion are rest, stress, and nutrition. In other words, a person who is prone to disorient, if they're well-rested in an, in an environment that doesn't have any stress and they are experiencing good nutrition, there will be very little disorientation, even though the person is prone to doing it. Mm. But if you take that same person and you, you deprive them of sufficient rest, you put them in a very stressful environment and their nutritional needs are not being met, this person is going to be very disoriented most of the time. So it is very important to be aware of these factors, even for individuals that could be disoriented without it being actually called dyslexia. Uh And if we look at the idea of, of stress and nutrition, and we look at and say, well, there are some people that have allergies to certain foods. Well, if you are consuming a food that you're allergic to in some way, that is not good nutrition. Okay. In addition to that, it is also an added stress on the system. Mm-hmm. And so it is very, very important not to uh, be doing things that... that, that or eating foods that are not good for you. Correct. Now, I I also know that when we become disoriented, we alter our brain chemistry. In other words, you do not get disoriented without changing some of the chemistry inside of your brain. And the uh, vitamins are essential to keeping your brain chemistry in balance. So if you are a person who is prone to being dyslexic or a person who is prone to just being disoriented, Mm -hmm. it is a very good idea to supplement your diet with with vitamins that you can get from from a health food store. Mm -hmm. It is essential. Essential fats are very important, I would say, for the brain. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. 
and and also the full range of vitamin B. I have found that the the vitamin B individuals who are dyslexic as adults have a tendency to to experience depression, mm-hmm. and the vitamin B. If uh, I, in my own case. I have discovered that by doing a daily regimen of vitamin B, the depression is something that I no longer experience. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the B so, from boy. The B from boy. It, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is the full range, including Correct. the niacin, which is the one that will make you flush. So yes. Yes. It's, uh, it, it is good that, that, that all of that can be included in the person's diet because to me this is a, a part of not only the stress but also the nutritional aspect of dealing with the the, the disorientation that even if you're addressing the dyslexia as a learning disability and you've got that part of it under control disorientation is still a fact of life yes mm-hmm. yeah. I agree with you well that is uh, that's good and uh, uh, to talk about some of these um, um, thresholds, so to say, uh, could be excess motions, a change in the order lines of the environment, furniture yep. rearrangement, moving households, scheduling changes, time pressure, like being rushed, threats of punishment, family strife, fear, loss of a loved one or an animal, anything that is a reminder of an unpleasant past experience, those are all distractions or disorientation uh, Well, there's what Rostron was talking about, stressors. Those stressors. are the stressors. Yes. And it just mm. makes sense. As I said, 80% of the population is nonverbal, and they will disorient. Mm. When things either confuse them or uh, cause anxiety, or they're curious about something, or they're bored. That's yeah. when the disorientation, those cells turn on. Mm-hmm. And Ron was going to have you experience that with this exercise. Okay. And, and hopefully back. we... Okay. Uh, I would like to do this. And, and in order to do this little exercise, you would have to be willing to let me ask you some questions. Okay. Can I do that? Uh, okay. Yes, you may. The first question is, how good is your imagination? If I ask you to imagine an elephant, could you do that? Yes. Did you? I did. Uh, what color was the elephant? Gray. Gray, okay. Uh, erase the elephant and uh, imagine home. Okay. Imagine home. Yes. Do you see the place where you now live? Uh-huh. Okay. Imagine school. Okay. Do you see the outside or the inside? I saw the outside first. Okay. You So you saw both. Okay. Yes. Uh, imagine a stack of books. Imagine a stack of books. Uh-huh. Is it hardcover and softcover mixed? Or just hardcover. Hardcover, and they were kind of uh, they were not in a straight straight stack. Okay, well, imagine a pile of papers. Is okay. that messy or neat? A little bit more messy. A little bit messy, and imagine a pencil. Not messy. Mm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, but, no, no. but the pencil does it does it have an eraser on the end of it? Um, it uh, did not. Was not the first thing I saw, but it was not a mechanical pencil. It was a just regular wooden pencil. Okay. Now, imagine a. Uh, imagine imagine a. Uh, uh, no, a. Uh, a. Uh, mm-hmm. uh. Do you see a lowercase a? Lower. Yes. Okay. All right. Imagine the. Yeah. What do you see? Uh, lowercase. Lowercase letters. Okay. And imagine and. Same thing, lowercase. 
lowercase, okay. In order to understand what you just experienced, there are two things that we have to consider first. The first thing that we have to consider is that language mirrors the thought process. If it did not, language would be way too complicated for anyone to learn. And the other thing that we have to consider is that that <clears throat> language is composed of symbols. A symbol is composed of three parts. What the symbol looks like when we see it, what it sounds like when we see it, and what it means. We must also consider that there are two methods of thinking. There's verbal thinking and nonverbal thinking. Now, in that little drill that we did, when I said... Uh, imagine an elephant, I'm actually asking you to shift into your nonverbal thinking mode and think with an elephant. Right. And there is the elephant, okay? Now that you're shifted into your nonverbal thinking mode, you can accurately think nonverbally with home and school and books and papers and a pencil. Okay. But you cannot think with a and or the nonverbally. Correct. When I said imagine a... Did you feel that 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 feeling of confusion? It almost is shaking. It is like hmm. Yeah, but it was more. It was more because I thought you were going to continue the sentence. Ah. Yeah. That you thought. Uh, okay. Imagine uh, and then another word. But because there was no word that came, Correct. there would have been a feeling that that goes. That feeling is what we call confusion, and okay. strictly from a science perspective of cause and effect, that feeling that you felt for just a moment, mm -hmm. that is the feeling that causes a dyslexic person to become disoriented. Right. That's what causes it. So when, when, when I said, imagine, uh, and nothing else came, what you got was a picture of nothing. Correct. That picture of nothing is where that feeling comes from. Uh -huh. And, Truly, to correct dyslexia, what we have to do is we have to fill in the blanks. We have to fill in so that the child that is dyslexic will have a picture for the meaning of a, and the meaning of and, and the meaning of the. Mm. And when the, the child sees those words or hears those words, they have the meaning that uh, a person who thinks verbally thinks with sound. So if they know the sound of the, they can think with the. But a person who is thinking with pictures is not thinking with sound. So it doesn't matter if they know the sound the. They're still not the way they're thinking. And also, if we consider they're thinking with pictures, the picture is not a picture of what the word would look like, like the lowercase a yeah. and the lowercase the. Uh -huh. The picture is actually the meaning of the word. And they think with meaning as opposed to thinking with sound. In order to teach a dyslexic something, you have to teach them meaning first. In order to teach a word thinker something, you have to teach them sound first. And that's the real difference between dyslexic individuals and non-dyslexic individuals is what it is that they need first in their learning process. I see. Wow. You know, Ron, I really hope that you will join us again for another interview in a few months, that we can continue this conversation about this uh, this ever-growing problem, believe it or not. I mean, you believe it and you know it, but uh, people are starting to realize that this is a much bigger issue than they thought, and they themselves could, have been, could be dyslexic at this point, 
not even realizing it until they listen to you or listen to Elsie. So I do hope that you come back with us, folks. Uh, this was Gesundheit with Jacobus. Elsie Johnson with me in the studio. Contact her at thelearningoptions.com. Go to her website or call her at 282-7416. And for all the information from Ron Davis, go to dyslexia.com. And thanks, everybody, for being here.